I hope you had a great 4th of July weekend blowing stuff up and hanging out with family and relaxing a little bit. One of the reasons that the 4th of July is my favorite holiday is because it's the last official holiday before football season begins. And I don't know about you, but there's a little part of me that kind of goes into hibernation and depression every year at the Super Bowl that begins to wake up a little bit when training camp starts the second week of July. I'm not counting the days officially or anything, but I think it's 12 days till the first training camp opens, uh, which is less than two weeks, and almost all of them are in full swing by the time we come to church on July 20. Uh, And I love football because I grew around, I, I grew up around the game of football. My dad was a football coach, so I was, I was kind of born into the sport of football in my very first memories almost of life. My, certainly my first memories with my dad were going to football practice with him. Uh, I remembered when I was finally old enough to go to two-a-days and my mom would let me pack my lunch and I would take all the tackling dummies and I would kind of build a fort to kind of guard myself from the sun and I would just sit all afternoon eating my little sack lunch inside the dummies watching the guys go through two-a-day practice, thinking I was one of them. I remember when finally I was old enough to become like the team manager, and I, my dad would let me come to every practice, and I had official jobs, and I would haul the dummies out, and I'd get everything set up. And I remember when I got to the point where he let me start painting the practice field, uh, and I would go out before practice, field, practice and paint, and then they, they let me start mowing it. They let me ride the big kind of school tractor and I'd get out and I'd mow the practice field and then I graduated to becoming the water boy and on game day I'd get to wear a jersey and be on the sidelines and give everyone their water and then finally I graduated to become the ball boy which is the guy who stands on the sidelines and he keeps the footballs clean and keeps them dry and when our team was on offense I got to throw them into the ref and when our team was on defense I got to make sure they were ready for the next possession got to go catch the extra points Um, I, I grew up this was my life growing up Um, And my dad, when I was in fourth and fifth grade, my dad had a quarterback um, at our small little Ohio high school who happened to be one of the best players in America, um, and he was my hero. Like, if my dad would have let me change my name, I would have considered changing my name to his name. I got my hair cut the exact same way he got his hair cut. I changed my number to his number. I started wearing, if we had a home game, I wore his away jersey on the sidelines. If we had an away game, I wore his home jersey on the sidelines. I mean, I just, I wanted to be this guy. He was the best Christian on the team. He was the best quarterback in, I mean, in probably the tri-state area of Ohio and West Virginia and Kentucky. Um, He led Fellowship of Christian Athletes. He would pray every time he scored a touchdown. He wrote Bible verses on his shoes and his wristbands. I mean, I wanted to grow up to be this guy. He was my hero. And I'll never forget when I was in fifth grade and we were at practice and I was kind of doing my thing as the water boy, getting everything ready for the team and make sure stuff was set up, that he called me over. He was also our kicker um, and he didn't have anyone to hold extra points for him. So he called me over and said, Christian, come grab a bag of footballs um, and I need, you to, I need you to hold for me while I'm kicking. And this was like the greatest day of my life. Here I am. I'm now on the field with my hero. I'm putting the ball on the tee and holding it for you. I didn't care if he kicked my hand. I didn't care if he broke my arm. I mean, I, I was just happy to be there. And as, you know, he, he took his few steps back and his few steps to the side, and he was just kicking ball after ball through the uprights. And as we moved back, he began to miss and began to miss and began to miss. And I heard him start saying words that I had never heard him say before on the football field. Of course, he's a 17-year-old teenager, um, but in my eyes, like he, was, like he was probably right next to my dad and Jesus. Um, and as he kept missing kicks um, from the ball to the tee to the wind to the weather to whatever, um, man, I, I heard a, a lot of language that I'd never heard before. And I remember that day as a little boy thinking, like, this guy's the greatest Christian in the world and I want to grow up to be like him. I remember being crushed. 
Like, I remember that day so clearly thinking, um, this guy is not quite the person that I thought he was. Now, I've grown up enough to know that we all have our good and our bad days. But I tell you that story to get you ready for our Bible study this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Because we've been studying the life of David for the very purpose of trying to become like David. Like David is everything that we want to be spiritually. David is everything we, we want to stand for spiritually. David is everything we want to try to accomplish spiritually. I mean, David is the man. And today, David has a fall from grace that, I mean, is really, really, really disappointing. As a matter of fact, I've often said, I, I don't know that anyone in this lifetime can love, can love God and have a relationship with God the way that David did. He had a special anointing on him as the king of Israel. And he had a special relationship with God that I, I don't know that will ever be reproduced in us. When I look at the Psalms that he wrote and how he taught a nation and really a world to worship God, I don't know that any of us will become what David was spiritually, but I almost guarantee none of us will fall as far as David did either. Because we read a story about a man today who's one of the most despicable human beings who's ever lived on planet earth. And he's our hero. So if you have your Bible, I want you to go to 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are going to come down the aisle. They've got Bibles you can use. Today's a good day to have a Bible in your hand because I'm going to read things. You're going to think that can't be true. Um, so if you don't have a Bible, raise your hands. If you, like, if you don't have one at home or you don't know where yours is, like, just put your name in this one and keep it. We've given away more than 700 Bibles since our church began, and we'd love for you to keep this and go home and read the rest of his life because today you're only going to get the very worst story ever. But today in 2 Samuel chapter 11, we see the most passionate follower of God that we have ever met in life become one of the worst human beings that the planet has ever seen. And, and we see it happen over the course of a few months. Now, before we read this narrative, let me ask you this question. How many of you know somebody who at one point was the greatest Christian you knew in life? Like, you watched their life, you watched their worship, you watched how they led their family, you watched the type of Christian they were, and you thought... That, that person literally is the greatest Christian on planet earth. And then, and then something happened and they had a terrible fall from where they were spiritually and they don't even walk with God anymore. How many of you know somebody like that? How many of you, that person sitting beside you, don't raise your hand for this one or look at them. That'd be very awkward. Um, let me ask you, how, how, many, how many of you, um, that person is sitting in your seat? It's you. You used to have this life where like you're so passionate spiritually and, and something happened. Within the narrative of today, I'm going to show you how somebody who's just full blast for God can get so sidetracked so quickly. Um, and it's a sad story. And here's, here's what the Bible says in 2 Samuel chapter 11. We'll read the whole chapter, 27 verses. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and they besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and he walked around on the roof of the palace and from the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her, and the man said, She's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. And then she went back home, and the woman conceived and sent word to David and said, I'm pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. 
So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants, and he didn't go down to his own house. David was told Uriah didn't go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why don't you go home? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I won't do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, but David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants, and he didn't go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, and he sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he'll be struck down and die. And while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. And when the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men of David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you finish giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he might ask you, why'd you get so close to the city? Don't you know they'd shoot arrows from the wall? Remember who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerebusheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then just say to him, moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out. And when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, the men overpowered us and they came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archer shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. And David told the messenger, say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought back to his house. And she became his wife, and she bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but this guy that we're reading about today is one of the the worst human beings. I mean, if we heard this story, if someone in our neighborhood did this, like we would not only have them thrown in prison, like we would form a mob and we we would go teach them a lesson, like the type of person that would do this can't be the type of person who used to really love God and walk closely with God. Like that, those two people can't exist in the same lifetime, right? The guy who would go kill Goliath on behalf of an entire nation. And then a guy who, who would kill a man just to cover up a pregnancy. I mean, these, this can't be the same person, right? But it is. And as we read through this story, we're studying the life of David because there's so much good in the life of David that if we can replicate it, We're going to be better spiritually. I promise you that. But there's also some things in the life of David that we never want to replicate. And there are some things we can learn in 2 Samuel chapter 11 about what I call the DNA of sin. The the question is how. How does this happen? The question is what happened? What happened to the heart of a man that loved God so much that that he did this? How does that happen? And the steps were very calculated. And when you see what happened to David, you can, you can begin to apply this DNA to your life and you can know whether you're in a great place spiritually 
whether you're in a slippery place spiritually, whether you're in a bad place spiritually, and you really can begin to determine the people that God has placed around you, you can kind of watch and guesstimate their spiritual success based on how much of this DNA of sin they have in their life. So while I'd like to ignore this chapter, I like David better without this part of his life. This part of his life teaches us a lot about making sure we can stand strong spiritually throughout our entire lives and that we don't repeat this passionate Christian that just man, fell off the map spiritually. So how does sin happen? Let me show you the DNA of sin as taught to us by 2 Samuel chapter 11. Reach inside your bullets and tear off that, that sermon note part on the back of it. You're going to want to take notes and learn some of this today. And really, you, you probably want to rate yourself on every one of these areas today so you can know if you're close to kind of falling spiritually like David did. How does sin happen? Point number one today, David got lazy spiritually. The very first thing that happened to begin to push David away from God and towards making terrible decisions was that he just got lazy spiritually. And the DNA of sin begins to implant itself in our life when we get lazy spiritually. Look at verse 1. Because if if we're reading this as historians, even if we're reading this as Israelites, we know there's a problem by the end of verse 1. Because it says, in the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites. They besieged Rabbah, which is a capital city in Ammon. But David remained in Jerusalem. He didn't go out. Now, army, the armies of Israel, and if you've ever watched the movie Gladiator, one of my favorite movies, you know that armies stay out all year round, and they would be on the front lines during the winter. But when it finally got warm enough for the king to travel well, the king would always be with his troops from March, April to September, October. Always would go out to his troops. And here you hear the historian saying that it came, when it came springtime, When kings always go to really fire up their troops, to be with them, to say thank you. It came springtime when it was time for David to go move forward spiritually that he decided to stay at home. But there's a problem with this. Because this is the commander-in-chief of Israel at a time of war, at a time where kings are engaged in war, and David didn't want to fight anymore. David was tired of fighting, but the battle wasn't over yet. And sometimes you and I find ourselves in that place spiritually. We're tired of the effort that it takes to keep pushing forward spiritually. But unfortunately, the spiritual battle in our life is not over yet. And we get to a point where we just like to relax. We get to a point where we just like to take a season off. We get to the point where we don't want to have to read our Bible every day to feel close to God. And we don't want to have to come to church every Sunday to feel close to God. And we don't don't want to have to do the spiritual things. Like we just want a little bit of a spiritual time out. Because we just need a little me time. We're sick of getting up early to read our Bible or stay up late. Like the spiritual battle is wearing on us and we just want to break. But the battle's not over yet. And if I could step into this narrative and ask David anything. Or if I could step into the narrative of your spiritual life that's getting weary. The question that anyone would ask of a warrior engaged in battle is. Why would you ever put down your weapon when the battle's not over? Why would you ever lay down your weapon? Why would you ever stop fighting when the enemy has not stopped fighting? In 1 Peter 5, 8, here's what we're taught as a New Testament Christian about spiritual warfare and about Satan and his plan for our life. It says, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion and he's looking for someone to devour. 
Now, do you think Satan would rather come after a Christian who full bore has all of his spiritual weapons and is moving forward or the one who wants to take a break? Like, I wish we could get some kind of spiritual covenant with the devil to just say, look, I just need a year off. Like, uh, you know, I won't make any strides spiritually forward. You just stay, like, let's just have a truce. But beginning in Genesis chapter 3, 2 and 3 with the fall of man, the, the devil has no time for a truce. And the minute you begin, the minute you stop pushing forward spiritually, you begin sliding backwards spiritually. There, there is no neutral because we read that the devil every day, all day is at work and he's pushing on us spiritually. So we've got to keep moving forward. The apostle Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul said, for though we live in this world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. So the apostle Paul says, when you become a Christian, like the, the hardest things you have to deal with in life are usually not things of this world, spiritual things. But you've got spiritual weapons. And if you will keep hold of the spiritual weapons, you'll, you'll keep making spiritual progress. He actually said demolishing stronghold. It's the picture of a fortification. Paul said anything in your life, if you'll just keep your spiritual weapons, you'll be able to overcome anything in your life. The, the strongest of battles that you have to fight. And when we started our church, we kind, of, we kind of did a study of the book of Acts. We said what was unique about the first church that the people in the first church were able to grow so close to Jesus and have so much impact so early. And we kind of created a list of what we, what we saw in the book of Acts as the weapons of our warfare. What we saw is the tools that God had given the people of his church to stay strong and to make progress. And here's what we found out. We found out that God gave to the church in Acts chapter 2 this weapon of, of weekly worship, this weapon of being able to experience God together once a week. And we put all these in ease, experience, engage, embrace, and equip. And we said, if we will keep these weapons going, we believe we can keep moving forward spiritually. We saw in the book of Acts in Acts 2, 46 and 47, that one of the weapons that God gave the early church was allowing them to engage in Christian relationships through small groups that met as according to scripture from house to house. And they would eat and they would talk about the things of God and they would move forward together. We saw that one of the weapons that God gave the church to keep them moving forward is he helped them embrace serving. In Acts chapter 6 and 7, there were hurting people that need to be served, and there were kind of strong people that needed to go to the next level in their Christianity and serve people. And God said, I'm going to give you each something that's going to keep you moving forward spiritually. You're going to be served. You're going to have the ability to serve, and together you're going to grow. And then we see throughout the epistles, which are the writings of the apostles, when they were teaching the church how to make, that they always tried to equip people with a spiritual growth plan, which were basically spiritual disciplines, like do these things to be strong spiritually. It was kind of like a, a personal trainer, but spiritually. And we asked one of our pastors, Pastor Ryan Holt, to go through scripture and to basically replicate that. He's our next steps pastor, and he, he made a little booklet, um, 12 spiritual next steps for new and growing Christians. These are just, these are weapons. That's all they are. They're spiritual tools to put in your hand to keep making spiritual progress. I put the link where you can download this on your sermon notes so that you can go and get it. But the reality is, a lot of us, when we get tired spiritually, we get lazy spiritually. And we put our weapons down. We're not as faithful to church. It's not that we're bad people. We're just tired. We don't do the small group thing. It's not for us. Or we don't like it. Or we just don't have any more time in the midst of a chaotic light. We don't really embrace serving. We just need a break right now. And we've quit trying to get stronger spiritually all the time. When you get lazy spiritually, 
Man, you're in, a, you're in a place for spiritual attack to come and to really be detrimental to your life. Now, let me show you how this continues. The laziness leads to spiritual conditions in David's life that are extremely dangerous. Number two, after he got lazy spiritually and decided to quit fighting, what's the second part of the DNA of sin? You stop avoiding tempting people and tempting places and tempting situations. Like the alarm bells that used to go off in your mind that this is not good for you spiritually. Like you just, you, you, you stop avoiding that. So you just don't care anymore. There's no alert in your head that this could be bad for your life. Look at verse 2. It says, one evening David got up from his bed and he walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. Now you and I read this and we think, man, what an unfortunate coincidence. I mean, if he wouldn't have been on a walk at that exact time, if she hadn't been taking a bath, if she would have like pulled the shower curtain shut, like there's a lot of things that could have kept this from happening. Like poor David, poor David that he happened on to this. But it's really not poor David at all. First, the word for evening there in the Hebrew language, it tells us about the laziness of David. This would be the time after the evening sacrifice, sometime five, six, seven o'clock at night. This is not midnight. It means David's been sleeping all day. His, his country's out fighting the battle, and he's just, he just hanging out in bed all day long. But he went out at the evening time to walk around on the roof of his house, and he just happened to see someone taking a bath. Now, this story became really real in my life on my first trip to Israel two years ago. Because we stayed in the city of Haifa, and this picture isn't really clear, but we were in a really tall hotel in the city of Haifa, and I opened the window. Robbie was my roommate. And the minute I opened the window, I was like, man, now I see how David... Like, could, David would have lived in the highest place in Jerusalem. Like, it's clear to see how he could see everyone's roof. But what I learned on the next trip is, we'll go to the next picture if you would. If you look at this picture, it doesn't mean much to you, except that this little guy right here, y'all see that little white can on the corner of that roof right there? Can y'all see that in that picture from where you're sitting? Those are water heaters. And I learned this year in Jerusalem, as I'm standing on top of the wall in Jerusalem looking out, and all these things, they have these things on top of their house. I asked somebody who was with us, I said, what is that? They said, those are water heaters. That's how everyone in Israel heats their water. Like they, they keep their water on, on the top of their house. It's the Middle East. The sun warms it all day long. Um, and then the only time really they ever use warm water is at sunset. They'll let it heat up all day long, and then they'll use warm water. He said in the old days, instead of having the water heaters... They would have two basins for water on the roof. One would be for bathing. One would be like for washing clothes and dishes and all that stuff. And he said they would never use the water till evening time. They'd let it get warm all day long. And then every evening they would go take their bath and wash their clothes and all that stuff. And it hit me. David knew exactly what was going on at that time. He'd walked on his palace, the roof of his palace, several times. My assumption is he went straight to her house. He'd been watching her. And David was walking into willingly a sinful situation. He wasn't trying to avoid sin. He was trying to find it. He wasn't trying to avoid just accidentally seeing someone. He was looking for somebody. Because this is what probably every man and woman in Israel did every night at this time of the night for years and years and years, continuing till today. They don't use warm water till the sun goes down after it's been heated all day long. Now we look at 1 Corinthians 15, 33, and we see... A note from the Apostle Paul that David should have remembered. It says this, don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. But I want you to circle the word misled on your sermon notes. If it's on there or write it down if it's not on there. 
Because it's a bad English word for the original Greek word that was in there. I had somebody ask me after the first service, how do you know this stuff about the Greek language? And here's what happened. The biblical writers wrote the Bible in the Greek language. And scholars have taken the Greek language of 100 to 300 AD, and they found everything that's written in the Greek from that in secular writing. And they said, here's how this word in the Bible is used most of the time. So we know the word misled is a mathematical term, and it was found most often in accountants' ledgers, not in history. It basically means it's a mathematical mistake. That's what the word misled is. Don't be misled means... Don't make a calculated mistake. It literally means don't get the wrong answer. It literally means don't be wrong. It literally means don't be ignorant. It literally means in our language, don't be stupid. Don't be stupid. Don't hang around sinful places and people if you want to live for God. That's what Paul's telling telling the church at Corinth. And here's the question that we all have to ask ourselves this morning. What's the roof of your palace in the evening that you're roaming around on, not not realizing or maybe not caring that if you stay there too long, you're going to get tripped up spiritually? What's the roof of your palace in the evening that you're taking walks on that is really dangerous for your life spiritually? Maybe it's a habit that you just refuse to stop. Maybe it's an addiction that you're caught up with and you won't tell anyone you've got to struggle with this. Maybe it's a, a, a workplace or a person at work that when you're driving to work, instead of driving to work, you find yourself thinking about this person and hoping they're there and hoping they'll engage you and hoping that you'll talk to them. Maybe it's a neighbor that you have a good or a bad relationship. Maybe it's an emotion, a jealousy you feel towards someone you feel like is where you want to be in life. Uh, perhaps it's an old relationship that you've begun to be aware of. Do you know that in the last decade, one out of every three divorce settlements in the United Kingdom listed Facebook as one of the causes of the divorce? You know when you get on Facebook to to see what an old boyfriend or girlfriend is up to that that's stupid, right? Don't be misled. Don't be stupid. You can't engage people you used to have strong feelings for and not have that bite you. Don't don't be misled. Don't Don't be stupid. Like that's dumb. Yet we find ourselves walking on the roofs of these palaces that we know are going to give us opportunity to sin. And it's like we're daring God and daring the devil at the same time. Just, you know, let's just see what happens. It's like we're gambling with our spiritual life. We see in David that this is is bad. When you stop avoiding tempting people and tempting places and tempting situations, and when you lean into things that you know can hurt you spiritually... The DNA of sin is going to settle deeply into your life. And then number three, when you start ignoring godly counsel and godly people, so I stop avoiding things that will help me. I also start ignoring things that will help, that, that will help me. So I avoid the things that can hurt. I don't avoid the things that can hurt me. I do ignore the things that can help me. Man, you're in a really bad spot. Look at verse three. Because David got some godly counsel from a godly person, but he just ignored it. We'll pick up in verse 2. One evening, David got up on his bed. He walked around the roof of his palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The the woman was very beautiful. Verse 3, and David sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. He literally said, David, she's married. Hey, who's, who's this woman over here taking a bath? 
And probably as respectfully as a servant of the king could say to the king, instead of saying, you're wrong, you can't look at her, no, you're crazy, he just very subtly, very respectfully kind of said, like, she's off limits. She's married. Who's that? She's married. David, this is someone's daughter. This is someone's wife. That, that's who, that, this is a real human being. You don't want to jack up her life. And David said, go get her. It's like he totally ignored the godly counsel. He totally ignored what his friend was trying to tell him. And he just blew through spiritual wisdom and said, I don't care. I'm just going to kind of do my own thing this time. In Hebrews chapter 10, we hear the author of Hebrews say to the first century church, the church has not even been going on 50 years. And he gave a warning about ignoring godly people and godly influences for people who are trying to grow. He said this, let us consider how we might spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Like, let's figure out how we can help each other out spiritually. And he said this, don't give up meeting together, as some are already in the habit of doing, but encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. The author of Hebrews is telling Christians, you can't ignore your Christian friends if you want to grow. You listen to them, they'll help you. The apostle Paul called out by name four different people in his letters where he said, these two people, these two people, they've quit listening to godly counsel. you got to get them away from you. They're dangerous spiritually. Like we tried to tell them, you tried to tell them, the Bible tried to tell them, they won't listen to anyone or anything. you got to get away from those people. They're going to hurt you spiritually. So this, this was a reality in the New Testament church. And you know these people who have begun to, begun to walk around on the palace of their life that's dangerous. They've started ignoring and avoiding godly counsel and godly people. And then you can begin to know if this is your heart or the heart of someone you're close to. Number four, when you have a person that rather cover up their sin than confess it. When you have someone who doesn't really care what God thinks but doesn't want people to think badly of them. And you got somebody who the DNA of sin has begun to take a deep root in their heart. Think about this story of David for a minute. Look at the, the multiple layers of cover-up that David had because he didn't want people to think badly of him. So who's this lady? Oh, that's Bathsheba. She's married. All right, go get her. So it said he brought her over and he slept with her. And it said then he sent her home. Like, like what a knight in shining armor, right? It's like, okay. Thanks, now you can get out. I mean, we're dealing with a dirt bag in 2 Samuel chapter 11. So he sent her home, and my assumption is that he had zero contact with her for at least four to six weeks. Say, why is it? Because whoever the author, whoever the historian is in 2 Samuel chapter 11, he adds this little line that it seems weird. It seems kind of personal. It seems like, you know, we, like we don't need to know her grocery list or what, you know, what she's doing. It's like she had just finished her time of monthly cleansing. It's like, why'd you put that personal detail in this? He wanted us to know she wasn't pregnant before David slept with her. That's all he, he was trying to tell. He was trying to say, she was not pregnant. Her husband wasn't home. This was David's kid. He's just proving a medical fact. So it takes her four to six weeks to find out she's pregnant. And the next communication they have is, hey, I'm pregnant. What are we going to do? And David, like a godly man, says, don't worry, I'll take care of it. And he writes a letter to Joab and says, hey, I need Uriah to come home. And here's his plan. It's really a brilliant plan if, if you don't care about the things of God. I'm going to bring your husband home. I'm going to let him stay all night with his wife. He's going to be so, he's been hanging out with a bunch of dirty men for like two or three months fighting. He's going to be so happy to see his wife. They're going to have a fun night together and celebrate their love. Send him back out to the battlefield. He'll come home in a year. He'll have a kid. He'll think it's his. No harm, no foul. 
no big deal, but it doesn't quite work that way. Brings Uriah home, and he's like, man, go wash your feet, which literally meant go take a shower, get comfortable, spend time with your family. And he finds out Uriah wouldn't go home. So he said, David, what are you going to do now? And he said, that's all right. I got another plan. So he brought him up, and he literally got him trashed. Like he spiked the punch at homecoming, right? Like it says that he brought, he brought Uriah to dinner, and they ate and drank, and it says he made him drunk. And I think here was the next phase of his plan, getting trashed, letting pass out. We'll take him home and throw him in his bed. He didn't even have to sleep with his wife. When he wakes up in the morning, he'll be like, wow, what did I do? He'll go off to war. He'll come back. She'll have a kid. He'll think it's his. No big deal. And he, and he doesn't sleep with his wife. He, it, apparently, he, hold, he holds his alcohol real well. He couldn't, couldn't get him to pass out, and he would not go home that night. So he said, David, what are you going to do now? And he says, think, think about it. This is David now who loves God. David says, we'll just kill him. I mean, think about, I mean, like none of us ever go there, right? I mean, who in the world thinks we're just, we're just killing? So he writes a letter that he puts in Uriah's hand. Like, do you think he said, now don't open this, like, please, before you go. And the letter says, make sure this guy dies. So Uriah goes to the battlefield. He's involved in, you know, he's kind of a special forces Marine front guy in. And he gets killed, and they send a battle report back, he's dead. And you're right, oh, and David thinks, oh, what a shame. And you can imagine he brought Bathsheba over, probably consoled her, probably gave her like a gold star or something. She's a widow of somebody who died fighting for their country. And then he steps in as a valiant warrior and says, you know, I know your husband has died. I know you probably don't have any way now to take care of this baby, so I'll, I'll take care of you. And he presents as the knight in shining armor to anyone outside who's watching not realizing that God is looking down at every step of the way thinking, David, what are you doing? Like some of us are living this life of cover-up. We got multiple cell phones and multiple Facebook accounts and like we're, we're living two different lives spiritually and as long as nobody finds out, we're okay. But God knows this stuff. And when we become more aware of what people might think of our sin than what God thinks of our sin, we know we've got a root of spiritual DNA in us that's leading to sin. When your first thought when you do something wrong is, oh no, what if someone finds out instead of, God, forgive me, your mind is already drifting to let you live and exist in sin because you're living now for the facade of men rather than with faith in God. And boy, when you begin to cover up rather than confess, when you start ignoring the godly people and counsel and places, when, when you begin to entertain tempting people and places and situations, and you step into this life of fully living in sin, number five, you develop, you develop a hard heart towards people. You get very selfish in your life and in your sin. I want you to look at verse 25. Because David is the king of Israel, and David is a warrior. Like, he's not a peacetime king. David is a veteran. David is a combat veteran. He's been in battle. He's been shot at. He's, he's been wounded. He's been injured. I'm sure he's held friends who have died in his hand. David is a combat veteran of war. And the war report comes back to him in verse 25. Hey, Uriah has died, and so have a bunch of other people. Verse 25, verse 24 says, the archer shot arrows at your servants, and some of them died. Moreover, Uriah died. And David told the messenger, say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. 
The sword devours one as well as another. Just press the attack against the city and destroy it. David's response literally was, people die, it's war. No big deal. Yeah, tell Joab, no big deal. I mean, it's war. Of course, of course some people died. It's war. No big deal. Tell Joab, no big deal. Everything's cool. Nothing's hurt. No harm, no foul. Um, we're okay. But when you really dig into the DNA of this story, it's scary who David has become to us. Because last week, if you were here last week, we talked about, we did a Bible study called Surrounded by Strength, and we talked about how strong Christians surround themselves with other strong Christians in life. And we looked at 2 Samuel chapter 23, where David, before he died, made a list of what the Bible calls his mighty men. They were his 37 closest friends. They were his 37 closest advisors. They were the 37 people that were on his SEAL team unit as he rose to become king of Israel. Like These were his brothers in arms, 37 people that David said, I could not live without. And he gives us all their names. In 2 Samuel 23, 34, we won't learn that one of them is named Eliam or Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilonite. In 2 Samuel 23, 39, we learn that one of them is named Uriah the Hittite. I mean, those names sound familiar. Go back up to verse 3 with me, if you would. David sent someone to find out about Bathsheba. Listen to what the guy said now. She's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah. He's like, David, this is like your best friend's wife. David, this is your best friend's daughter. Like, as a servant, he doesn't have the ability to say, David, over my dead body, are you going to sleep with her? But, like, he's trying to remind David, like, David, you care about her husband. You care about her dad. Like, David, you cannot do this to your friends. David, you fought with these men. David, these men have established Israel together. You cannot commit adultery with your best friend's wife. And David not only does that, he then kills him. You look at the hard heart of David. You say, man, how does a Christian get to a point where their sin hurts people so bad that are closest to them and they don't ever care? And you look at life today in the United States of America. And it's funny how the sin of our life hurts the people closest to us the most. Like, there's no dad on planet Earth who planned to hurt his wife and his kids the way he did when he was living in sin. But they were hurt. So much more than anyone else. There's not a mom alive who wants to hurt her husband and her kids the way she hurt her husband. And kids, there's not a teenager alive who wants to kill the soul of their mom and dad. But sin does that. Dad, your stupid sin is killing your family. And if you don't get off the roof of your palace, you're going to hurt the people closest to you more than anyone else. Mom, If you remain in the sin that you're in, your stupid sin is going to hurt the people closest to you in life more than any other friend or neighbor or coworker that you have. Teenager, your stupid sin is killing your parents who are working towards everything in life to provide for you. You're killing your parents. And some of you are saying, Christian, you're hurting my feelings. You are hurting your families. You see how we redirect when we have DNA of sin in us? It's like, man, you just, call, you, just, you just said the things I'm doing are stupid. No, I just said the things you're doing are going to destroy your family, and you didn't even hear that. Because like David, you've got to, you don't even care about anyone else. And we look at David's life, and we learn that sin is real, and sin is damaging. 
And if you don't believe that, all you have to do is look at the trail of hurting people that it leaves behind. Next week, I'm going to teach on the story of Ahithophel, who was Bathsheba's grandfather. And you're going to see that Bathsheba's grandfather, after this event, lived his entire life to pay David back. And eventually was so overwhelmed by bitterness, he committed suicide. I'm going to talk to you about how when we let the sin of others hang on to us forever and cause a root of bitterness, it destroys us and they could care less. But I need you to listen. It's the problem of sin that has caused us to start a church in this community. Because people need Jesus. There are people who have been so hurt by the sin of someone close to them that they need a church to wrap their arms around them and be the spouse, to be the parents, to be the kids that they didn't have. There are people who've been hurt by sin that need someone to love them. And there are people heading towards sin that need someone to stop them. That's why our church is here. Because sin is real. And hurt is real. And the eternal destination of hell is real. Sin is a damaging thing in our world. And if someone doesn't step up and say, hang on, you shouldn't do that. That's going to hurt everyone around you in life. And people are just going to continue in their spiritual destruction. And somebody's got to do something about it. And we can't lose sight of that. We can't lose sight when we're setting up chairs. We can't lose sight when we're setting up drape. We can't lose sight when we're setting up cables and cameras and nursery and kids. We can't lose sight that sin is hurting people in our community. And our church needs to do something about that. This can't be our hour and 15 to sing our songs, see our friends and leave. We have to engage this problem of sin in the world. Because sin kills people. And you look at David and what his sin did, and it is unfathomable that he would have an affair with his be- one of his best friend's wives and then kill him. Are you kidding me? Like, who does that? Sin does that. David got to a place where he just couldn't see or feel God anymore. And then number six. When we get to this place in life, unfortunately, many of us begin to judge other people by impossible standards rather than just looking at our own life and trying to find out what God is saying to us. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, if you turn the page, we we hear at the end of 2 Samuel chapter 11, like God's mad, sure he is. 2 Samuel chapter 12 opened, it's, it's been about 18 months, and like nothing has happened. David hadn't apologized, there's been no confession, there's really been no life change. And here's, what, here's how 2 Samuel chapter 12 is open. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. And when he came to him, he said there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it. It grew up with him and his children. It shared his food and drank from his cup. It slept in his arms. Kind of like my dog Rudy. He, like, he sits at the table with us and sleeps in our beds. It was like a daughter to him. Verse 4, now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man, and he prepared it for the one who'd come. And David burned with anger against this man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Nathan tells David a story about a guy who hurt a lamb. And David said, that person shouldn't be allowed to live. And then Nathan in verse 7 said, David, like, this is you. And this is not a story about a little lamb. Like, David, you've, you've murdered people. And David, like Uriah, had nothing in life but, but his wife and his family. Like, you took that from him. And like, you don't even care. And David was so consumed with 
with judging everyone else's sins and their hypocrisy and how they couldn't live up to God, that he had forgotten to shine the mirror of spiritual reflection on himself. And he'd become so focused on others that his heart had closed to what God wanted to do in him. And when you get to this point, you see every fault of every person without ever acknowledging your own. And this is a dangerous spot to be in. This is where Jesus said, you, you look at the speck in someone else's eye, but you've got a plank in your own. Like you see everyone else's faults but your own. It's a dangerous place to be as a follower of Jesus. You say, Christian, what do, we, what do we do? What do we learn from this? The bottom line is this. There are parts of David's life that really show us how to have a heart for God. We're going to learn those all summer long. But there are parts of David's life that show us how somebody who is passionate spiritually can really drift away. And there are people in this room who are in various stages of this drift. Now, the conclusion of the matter is baby, you say, what do we need to learn from this message? You need to learn to be aware of your life, but you also need to learn to be aware of the life of others. Because the, the thought of this message today and what we're trying to learn is always for me first, right? 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Paul says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Like the person who thinks they're never going to fail spiritually, you've got to be aware of these things. You can't let them creep into their life. You'll never love God as much as David did. If he could fall, you could fall. If David could fall, I could fall. If, if David, like, man, if David could do this, anyone could do this. Any of us, if we go through these stages of sin. Secondly, hopefully most of us aren't there right now. And, and, and we go through that list and we think, this is not me in any of the six. Great. James five nineteen and 20 is for you then. Where James says, my brother and sisters, if one of you should wonder from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Man, if you can look at that list of six and say, this isn't me, I'm doing well spiritually, then you need to turn your attention outward and say, God, who do I need to be a Nathan to? Is it my spouse? Is it my kids? Is it my parents? Is it my extended family? Is it my... Na- who, who God has this DNA of sin? I see it in their life. And I don't want them to become like David. My prayer is that your eyes would be open today to your life, the condition of your heart, and the lives of others around you and the conditions of their hearts. Because sin leads to hurt. And our church is here to help hurting people, but we do that two ways. One, we bring in those who have been hurt. But I I like it better when we get to stop the hurt in advance. And we get to redirect people off of this path and onto kind of the good David that we've learned about. So my question for you today is, if your eyes are open, who are you looking at? Do you see this DNA of sin in you that has to be corrected? Do you see this DNA of sin in someone else that has to be corrected? If so, would you do something about it? Like, would you not leave today having learned something, but would you leave today to do something? Let's pray together.